welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women both overlooked and iconic who achieved amazing things against the odds. And we do it through live history storytelling in Berlin and beyond. I'm Susan Stone, and here with me on the screen, although I saw him in person just the other day, it's Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dowsens. Hi there. Hi, Susan. I'm in my closet, and I sound great. You do. <laughs> <laughs> And it's hot as heck. <laughs> so welcome, Florian, and everybody to the final episode of season four. And it's the end of our second COVID year, which is why we are once again ending after 10 episodes instead of 12. Yeah, we're calling it a little bit early just because Berlin is slowly opening up and we're slowly starting to make plans, uh, but we're not exactly sure when we're starting again. So we're, we're, we need a little summer break buffer before we come back in full force. It's true. I mean, as you can imagine, the uh, foibles of doing a podcast based on a live show when you can't have a live show, well, you know, it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're making it work. <laughs> well, and we, we very much uh, have had the pleasure of our deep pockets in terms of your deep pockets of recordings uh, from, from years gone by. Uh, but they are running out. They are running low. Yes, I and guess. producer talk that's called The Shelf, and The Shelf is looking bare right now. <laughs> Starting to, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm excited to fill up The Shelf again. Me too. So for this episode, please, will you do the honors and tell us about the featured dead lady and the live lady presenting her? with the greatest of pleasures. This episode's Dead Lady will be presented by our dear co-founder, Katie Darbyshire. Katie is a brilliant translator and the publisher of VNQ Books, uh, an imprint devoted to bringing contemporary German fiction to English. And as is very fitting, she'll be talking about a German writer, though not a contemporary one. Um, the Dead Lady Show in our title sort of gives that away. Uh, it's Irmgard Coin. Yay! Yes, there's dark humor and parties in the face of danger and fabulous costume changes and an unreliable narrator. So it's a little bit of Babylon Berlin meets Cabaret, perhaps. Exactly. And it's also, should be noted, um, one of the first ladies that Katie and I uh, even spoke about before we even thought of the name Dead Lady Show. I was talking about Dorothy Parker. She was talking about Ermgard Quine. I think the two are very well matched. Uh, but without further ado, here's Katie recorded live in the courtyard of our very own cabaret, Berlin venue, Akut. So I'm going to tell you about Umgard Coin. Here she is. She was an amazing German writer. She was a great storyteller. Uh, she wasn't a reliable witness of her own life. She wasn't always truthful about herself. And uh, she kept a lot of secrets. So it's kind of tricky working out what's true and what's false here. Um, she was born in Charlottenburg, not far from here, Meinekestrasse 6, on the 6th of February, 1905. As you can see, there's a plaque outside her house. The family moved to Cologne eight years later, so she grew up there. They were fairly well off, but not quite as wealthy as she liked to tell people. <laughs> here she is looking... Very cute in a photographer's studio. Probably still in Berlin. I'd say she's under eight there, right? Um, she went to some kind of a finishing school and then she trained as a typist. 
uh, which wasn't something she particularly enjoyed, but it, very, it came in useful later on. You'll find out how. And then she went to acting school. So just before she went to acting school, she shaved five years off her official age. So this is the beginning of this storytelling, really. Um, it turned out she wasn't actually a, a, a very great actress. There are some polite but uh, uh, negative reviews. Um, so what she did was she moved back in with her parents and wrote a novel, as you do. She claimed to have met this big uh, German writer, Alfred Döblin, before she wrote it, who said, if you write half as well as you speak, tell stories and observe, you'll be the best woman writer Germany has ever had. Allegedly, he said that anyway. Um, so this novel, oh, there she is around the edge. Uh, this novel that she wrote while living with her parents was called Gigi, Eine von uns, and it came out in October of 1931. It's a lovely short novel about a young woman in Cologne who works very hard for a living as a typist. Yes, drawn from life, and steers her way around overly lustful bosses, and so on, but then falls for a lazy writer, feel free to boo at this point, um, and moves in with him. So it's about, it's about the new woman of the 30s, about love, about rich people and poor people, and I really recommend it. So this was already a major success, and she garnered this beautiful piece of patronizing praise from another writer, now the German writer, Kurt Tucholsky, who was surprised to find that there are funny women. <laughs> Here is a talent. If she works more, travels, puts a great love behind her, and finds a medium-sized one, this woman could make something out of herself. And you can see here that, in fact, by that point, she already had made something out of herself. She was a big success. She'd bought her first fur coat out of the uh, takings for that book. It was, um, the downside was that there was a library journal which recommended it for um, mature readers only. And the communists thought it was too frivolous. But only a year later, there was a movie adaptation it was called Eine von uns, premiered in October 1932, and it featured um, handsome musician Ernst Busch, in case you know him, as the trust fund communist Pitt, and Brigitte Helm as Gilge, who you can see here looking very glamorous in the typing pool. She might look familiar. I have, if you could see it, this tiny picture up here of her in, in Metropolis. She played that human machine. And tie into a previous Dead Lady show, Brigitte Hilm was considered, I don't know if you know this, Roy, and she was considered for the role of the Bride of Frankenstein what? that went to Elsa Lanchester. She didn't get it, but she would have been our hair inspiration, right? Anyway, hot on the heels of Gigi came Das Kunstseidene Mädchen, the artificial silk girl, in spring of 1932. It was another big hit. We get another woman getting up to mischief in Cologne. She gives up typing for the theater, steals a fur coat, and runs away to Berlin to be a star, don't we all? Um, things don't turn out quite as glamorous as she thought, though. This time it's a young woman called Doris talking, and she's writing her diary. I want to write like a movie, because my life is like that, and it's going to become even more so. The book was an international success this time. It was translated into French, English, Dutch, Hungarian, Russian, Danish, Swedish, Romanian, Italian, and Polish. So around this time, she married the theater director and later writer, with her help, Johannes Tralo, 
that was after his second divorce came through. And it probably wasn't going that well. She wrote some rather disparaging letters. And in the spring of 1933, she met this Jewish doctor called Arnold Strauss, who wanted to help her with her alcohol problem. We'll hear more about that. He wisely emigrated to the USA in 1935 and basically continued to support her um, financially for, for the next five years from far. And a lot of what we know about her life during those five years comes from her regular letters to him, which he kept. Um, his were lost to her. She told him about her depression. Perhaps I couldn't write books if I didn't have it, hence my fondness for alcohol as well. Now, as you might imagine, Nazi Germany didn't suit her. Uh, her books were removed from libraries. The Nazis called them asphalt literature with anti-German tendencies, which is my favorite kind. Um, uh, they were burned by students, confiscated by the Gestapo, and Umgard had either the craziness or the courage to sue the authorities for loss of income. They took no notice. Then, uh, possibly, she was arrested and allegedly she was released in return for 200,000 marks, but what we do know for sure is that she went into exile in May 1936. Here she is in um, Ostende in Belgium in 1936, looking a little bit pissed off, really. Um, she was now politically active, and she wrote and wrote and wrote. In Ostende, she met the Austrian writer Josef Roth, who's... Uh, still a big name, really, um, and he was basically drinking his way around Europe at the time. He was 42, she was 26, or probably 31, in fact, and uh, they became inseparable. She wrote, out of fear of being alone, although our mutual interest was present the very first time we met. They'd sit in different corners of the same cafe, uh, and write all day. They'd be uh, interrupted by the occasional shouts, which was apparently quite hard to get hold of in Belgium at the time, but uh, they had their ways. The journalist Egon Erwin Kisch is quoted as saying, Coin is trying to get Roth off the drink. Zepp is trying to get her on it. I fear Roth will win out. So she, uh, in exile, she published first a book of quite harmless short stories, probably based on her own childhood, which unsurprisingly were the most popular of her books in, in post-war Germany. And then the excellent anti-Nazi novel Nach Mitternacht, After Midnight. This was extremely well received. And again, she used a young woman as a narrator to cast a naive eye over German society under Hitler. She still had readers at the time in Austria and Switzerland and among exiles and again in translation. Things took a turn for the worse, though. Johannes Tralo divorced her in 1937. She wasn't Nazi enough for him, um, which is actually cited in the divorce. Uh, yeah, he didn't like that she was hanging out in Belgium drinking schnapps with this Jewish writer. I don't know. Um, and she ended up having to pay the court costs for her own divorce. She left Roth, or, or maybe he left her, at the end of that year. She wrote, in Paris, I left him with a deep sigh of relief and skipped off to Nice with a French naval officer. <laughs> Here she is, in fact, in Nice in 1937, looking really quite dapper, I think. She wrote another novel in 1938, which wasn't a great hit. And then she visited her benefactor slash fiancé, Strauss, in the USA, but she couldn't get a visa to stay any longer, so she had to return to Europe on the brink of war. 
her book, Kind aller Länder, Child of All Nations, came out in December of 1938. She was really churning them out, um, which is a real return to form. I recommend that one too. It's narrated by a child this time, Kuli, the young daughter of an exiled writer, and he gets up to all these sort of shenanigans and leaves her and her mother in hotels and goes off and they can't leave because he can't pay the bill, that kind of thing. So Rort died in December 1939, and Strauss gave up on Coin shortly later. So all three of her men were gone. And the German troops invaded France and the Netherlands in 1940. In August of that year, the British Daily Telegraph reported her suicide. I don't know if you can read it, but it's basically a, an article about somebody else, another German writer committing suicide. She gets half a sentence. Um, but she wasn't dead, don't worry. Um, in fact, what she was doing, she, she returned to her parents in Cologne on a fake passport. She said she persuaded a German bureaucrat into issuing it by talking his penis inside out. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I can't imagine how that would work. I'm, gonna, I'm trying not to think about it. Anyway, um, she, she lived in a flat that belonged to her parents in Cologne. As I said, they were fairly well off. She was bombed out, though, in 1943 and lived in a hotel. After the war, she moved back into that flat, which was kind of patched up. She, she wrote stories and satirical sketches for the radio and for magazines. She wrote a book about her time in emigration in 1947, which was loosely autobiographical, let's say. But gradually, she got broker and broker, and her next book flopped. This is her at home in 1950 in, I think, a one-room flat all those photos and magazine pages stuck to the walls. It looks, looks a little bit oppressive. But it's very up and down, this story. Her daughter, Martina, was born in July 1951. So Quan was 46 at the time, which is how old I am. I'm impressed. And uh, we don't know who the father was, another of her secrets. She was a, a proud single mother. She took out a newspaper ad to announce the birth of her daughter. I think it's gorgeous. Um, sadly, though, her, her mother, who she was very close to, died while she was in rehab for alcohol dependency in 1962, and that was very difficult for her. She was um, institutionalized in 1966 and stayed on a closed psychiatric ward in Bonn until 1972. This is one of my favorite photos of her coming out of hospital, ready to start again. I think it's gorgeous. Um, in, she was very fond of big coats, I think. Yeah, so I think she must have been happy on that day. She wasn't generally a happy woman at this time. She told her daughter the Nazis had taken her best years and she, she couldn't write anymore. But I told you it was up and down. She was uh, rediscovered by a whole new generation in 1977. Re her books were reprinted. She held readings. She bought jewelry. As you can see, this great big fat ring and a big watch. She did her eyebrows. Um, she, she bought a new fur. She was really into furs. <laughs> a woman of her time. Uh, she claimed to be, to be writing an autobiography, but her daughter never found any pages she'd written. Um, the city of Cologne held a party for her 70th birthday party. Her birthday. She, just, she was just hugely popular. I think it's a gorgeous thing. The book Nach Mitternacht, After Midnight, that uh, one set in Nazi Germany, was adapted as a film in 1981. His Ungard in the middle, and the young star, Desiree Nosbusch, looking 
really gorgeous on the left there, uh, and on the right is the producer, Regina Ziegler. I'm going to show you a little clip, and, um, but I'm just going to tell you what's happening, which may be a bit weird, but anyway. So here comes a clip from Nach Mitternacht. So what's happening here? We've got uh, the protagonist, Sana, and her friend are in a cafe, and Hitler is driving past outside. Um, you can hear the radios on. Everyone's very excited. And then no one's quite sure what to do until they all start standing up and doing the Hitler salute. And his own guard calmly lighting a cigarette. No intention of standing up. Sana and her friend, very impressed, but they have to stand up and do the salute as well. Na Mädels, wollt ihr nicht auch auf dem Balkon? Da ist ein guter Platz und ihr könnt alles sehen. Es geht los und der Wagen fährt an und nun in Deutsch durch die Stadt. So off the girls go. Pass Ungard. Here it comes. There you go. Sticks her tongue out at that horrible old Nazi lady exhorting her to stand up and do the salute. I think it's lovely. I think... I don't know if she would have done that in real life, but I think it's great to be able to act like you did later in life. Ungard Coyne died of a lung tumor on the 5th of May, 1982. If you read English, her four real key books have all been translated fairly recently. Uh, from left to right, you've got After Midnight, translated by uh, Anthea Bell. You've got The Artificial Silk Girl, her second novel, um, translated by Kathy von Ankum. Got Gilgi, that debut, um, translated by Jeff Wilkes. And just above my head is um, Child of All Nations, translated by Michael Hoffman. You'll notice that they're all a bit mix and match. So if you read German, you should definitely get this beautiful, beautiful kind of box set, three hardbacks in a slipcover. It's only 39 euros, which I just don't think is a bargain. For this talk, I worked with this little slim but perfectly formed biography by um, Hildrud Henschu, who did loads and loads of detective work, kind of reading files from the Nazi era, reading all the letters, and kind of worked out to some extent what was true and what was false. Here's my number one favorite, Umgard on the phone, looking really grumpy. Um, I think her writing was important for, for two main reasons. I think, firstly, it, it, she really captured her time. She, she gave us a, I think, probably realistic portrait of women in the 30s who were newly, um, newly liberated. And she wasn't, she accused her fellow exile writers of, of only writing historical fiction. She was really writing about what was happening on the ground that year. Um, and secondly, she combined politics and humor in a time when women really, the, the idea of women having a sense of humor meant they would laugh at men's jokes. Whether that's any different now, I don't know. I think of her a little bit as a, as a kind of a German Dorothy Parker, which is apt because Dorothy Parker was the other first woman we talked about here. So I'm going to read you a text that she published in 1954, just a little satirical piece called What Gets a Person Drunk? There was a party in the evening. 
At first it was rather celebratory, then it grew rather merry, then very merry, then debauched, and later it grew dark. The next afternoon, I was due to meet several of the party's participants in an establishment for an exchange among colleagues. At first, I didn't want to go, but then I did go because I wanted to know whether the others felt as bad as I did and whether my singing had offended anyone. I can't actually sing, you see. Most of them arrived at the allotted hour, acted stiffly perky, and seemed, thank God, equally worse for wear. Our drinks consumption varied from mineral water, fruit juice, and Coca-Cola to weak beer. We would have drunk milk, but there was none on the menu. We were all in physical and mental tatters, but it lessened our depression when we established bit by bit that everyone was nursing a hangover, the size and temperament of a black panther. It's dreadful to be the only participant of a party to have been beyond what can be referred to as a teeny bit tipsy. We rubbed salt in our collective wounds by recalling the presumably sober witnesses, and we found collective moral sucker in Friedrich, a very shy and well-brought-up young man who had the previous evening smeared cream cake into the hair of the staid hostess. Friedrich began by pretending not to remember a thing, of course, but we wouldn't permit it. Bit by bit, we seeged into the classic conversation which almost all those partake, with slight variations, who have woken from a sturdy inebriation to excruciating reality. First, we naturally established that we had all drunk next to nothing. <laughs> then we moved on to intense investigation of the reasons for our uncharacteristically bacchanalian behavior. The possibilities included the following. It must have been the herring salad. The eel disagreed with me. I shouldn't have had cream in my coffee. A lot of people can't stomach coffee in the evenings. The mayonnaise must have been off. We didn't eat enough fat. In my case, it was all from smoking so many cigarettes. We shouldn't have sat still for so long. The biggest mistake was dancing afterwards. The fresh air knocked me out when somebody opened the balcony door. Fresh air always knocks you out. It was the half a glass of peppermint liqueur after the wine that did that for me. We're all totally overworked. We're living in constant fear of political and economic catastrophe, so we can't take our drink anymore. We've been through, yes, familiar. We've been through too much. Our nerves are shot. The low ceiling was the final straw. The worst thing was the candlelight. I should have told my wife straight off to keep away from the cream cake. Roses are all very well, but if it wasn't for the overpowering scent of five bouquets, we would have stayed sober. We found a whole range of other factors to blame, and each of us could pick and choose which one we liked best. Top marks went to the presumably off mayonnaise, the low ceiling, and our economically frayed nerves. We established that a person gets drunk from eating or not eating, from smoking, from dancing or not dancing, from cream, coffee, tea, from pleasant and unpleasant smells, etc., etc. There's really not much that doesn't get a person drunk. <laughs> you can never be too careful. Almost the only substance that doesn't produce drunkenness appears to be alcohol. <laughs> At least no one has ever told me they've got drunk from drinking alcohol, and most from consuming too little of it. As good as nothing at all. So here's to Umgad Coyne. Thank you. Katie Darbyshire on Irmgard Coin at Berlin's Akud. It's nice to hear a little something from that courtyard because we should be back there soon for a few live shows this summer.
I know. We were just uh, there for a meeting and a hush-hush secret project uh, earlier this week. And it was so nice to to be back in the hallowed halls, you know. If hallowed halls are full of graffiti and uh, posters for long-gone plays and movies, that's how it felt. Yes, we'll call it the hallowed hoff. <laughs> Excellent. We will be bringing you some of those fabulous presenters and their chosen dead ladies when we return with season five of The Dead Lady Show in September. For now, thank you so much for listening and staying with us for supporting us and sharing us with others. As you may know, we have a Patreon with special audio features. Uh, I was recently talking about dance pioneer Louis Fuller. We had an interview with author Divya Galani about Pakistani short story writer and novelist Ismat Chutkai. And Florian, it wasn't that long ago that we put together a musical mix for you, including Mariah Carey and Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift's chosen dead lady, Rebecca Harkness. Exactly. I mean, Mariah Carey and Taylor Swift very much still alive. Yes, we of course. We should stress this. Very much still alive. But yes, <laughs> I think you'd be in for a treat if you give us some money. You can listen to it. <laughs> I mean, it is fun. And it's a little bit different than what we're able to do on The Dead Lady Show. But it's also very much off the cuff, fun. I'm talking about Ursula Le Guin. Who doesn't want to hear about Ursula Le Guin? Indeed. And where can you find it? <laughs> You can find all of those segments. We call it the Dead Lady Book Club at patreon.com slash deadladyshowpodcast. So if you miss us over the summer, take a look there. There's also a few that are just unlocked for everybody to check out. And if you go on our website, you can also see some fabulous pics of this episode's dead lady, um, Got Coin, and find out more about her life and her books. You can find all that at deadladyshow.com slash podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show and which dead ladies you think we should cover by emailing info at deadladyshow.com or just give us a shout on social media at deadladyshow. That is our theme song, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion in the background. So that means it is time for me to tell you that The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dyson and Katie Derbyshire and that the podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Thank you to Katie out there in the world and thank you to Florian here in the world and thank you to our friends at Akud where we hold our shows. And thank you to Susan most of all. Thank you, Susan. Yay! And thanks to everybody out there listening. See you in September. Bye. Support for this episode of the Dead Ladies Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.